going to lace anybody's Starbucks with like nuclear dust or anything? Absolutely not. That, I don't know why you would even ask me that. I, that would probably <laughs> be a way to get, start, get, get fired real fast. I mean, nobody wants radioactive coffee. No, that's terrible. But <laughs> I'm just going to be making normal coffee. You know, white mochas, holiday, camel brulee lattes are my favorite. So, Do, do you like pumpkin spice? Uh, no. Okay, I never good, order pumpkin. Good. Do you like pumpkin spice? Uh, not terribly, and I'm pretty sure you have to surrender your man card if you order too many pumpkin spice lattes. What's the limit? What's, like, the line? I'm gonna say more, no more than four across, like, a month. If you get more than So you than can that, try it. You can, you can you try can... it, but if, like, if you just go in, you're like, oh, yes, my favorite thing is a pumpkin spice latte. Like, ooh. No, it's too sweet. You need something harsh and bitter for good coffee. Whatever. Just get on with the episode. <laughs> Go do your intro thing. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We're here today to carry on the conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Delves. And today we're going to be discussing the January-February resolution for Lincoln Douglas, which reads, States ought to eliminate their nuclear arsenals. We've got all kinds of great stuff in this resolution. I know I'm excited. I know you're excited. We're going to take this resolution to the Durham tournament, to the Harvard tournament. And it's a great resolution. Yeah, and Public Forum got a great resolution, too, about Venezuela. I'm so excited to watch rounds about that. Uh, so we have two really strong, powerful resolutions going in. It's fantastic. I, I think this almost this is almost making up for how frustrating the fossil fuels. I know we go from S A T A C T fossil fuels, nuclear weapons. Uh, it's so exciting. I mean, no matter which side we're on, we're dealing with huge questions, massive global political implications. Even I know you're not excited about it. I I honestly am like there there really is a good environmental argument on this one. We'll see if you unpack it a little more. I might be more open to it. I just think there's way more to focus on than the environmental impacts because like if we launch a nuclear warhead, we don't really need to worry about the environment because we're all going to be dead. Well, that's true. There there is that. I mean, I think the existential threat trumps the environmental harm. Um, but really, together, those could make a pretty compelling. They, they could make a pretty compelling case. Okay. Well, let, let's dive right in. So uh, what, what are you seeing in this resolution, Ethan? The first word, states, means that this is a global resolution. So it involves all players that currently have nuclear arsenals. So that's, I think that's interesting because the last two resolutions were confined to the United States. Like We had one confined to United States colleges, United States fossil fuels, and now we're going for a global resolution to kick off the new year. So I think that's cool. That is pretty cool. I hadn't thought about it quite that way with the new year, but a new year, a bigger focus. Yeah, it works for me. Yeah, it's, it's, and I think it makes sense here since nuclear weapons are something that are bigger than any individual can have. Right. No, it's, I, I mean, maybe uh, Mark Ruffalo could afford to purchase a nuclear missile, but ordinary human beings cannot simply buy a nuclear weapon. These are this is this is the game of war on the state's level. And this is a real like this is a threat to humanity, honestly, because mm -hmm. we've had missiles before, but when you add nuclear missiles into the picture, this could literally be our own destruction. It's entirely possible. Okay, so we've got states and we'll we'll get into well, let's let's go and do that now. Um, Ethan, who are the states as far as you know who have nuclear weapons? Okay, so I watched a video on this yesterday, and from what I could remember, there's nine. I know there's nine, and these are the nine. U.S., Russia, Pakistan, India, China, North Korea, U.K., France, and Israel's in there, but they haven't openly admitted that they have nuclear weapons, but they have nuclear weapons, so... They, they have nuclear weapons. Right, so they that makes up nine, and they're the two biggest ones are the U.S. and Russia. Russia has the most, U.S. is second. There's a gap of about 300, 400 warheads that we know of in there. Um, and then I believe the next biggest one, I'm not sure, it could be France or Pakistan. 
But that's what we're dealing with so far. And India was one of the latest to the program, too. And then North Korea after them. Well, and it's at least probably worth mentioning that I suspect there are other states in the world that would like to become nuclear powers. Right, but the economic investment and sort of that, or just the financial investment into that sort of project. I mean, we, we started with the Manhattan Project. We were the first ones to ever do this. And it took massive... <clears throat> Sorry, massive amounts of resources to get it done. So I think that's why we're dealing with quite a narrow span mm-hmm. of countries in this area, which is kind of nice because then you don't need to dig into like the nuclear weapons of the, you know, there's top 50 countries and then it just gets all convoluted. You don't know all the specifics. We've got a solid nine to deal with. Okay. So I think that's good. That's a nice confined bit. Yep. All right. So then we've got states. Now, of course, the affirmative is morally obligated with by the phrase ought to or ought there. Right. Uh, so... <clears throat> AF hopefully will uphold their burden and argue this on the level of principle rather than just pragmatics. I see some ground on that for NEG too, but I'm going to save that for when we get to that. Okay. I'm excited about that part. All right. What do you, what do you see in the, that uh, verb, to eliminate? Eliminate's pretty special because it means that we, we have no room for any nuclear missiles anymore. I mean, everybody's getting rid of all of their nukes. And if there weren't the word eliminated in the resolution, it would just be states ought to maybe reduce their nuclear arsenals. That takes away all of the moral ground that affirmative would have. Because if we're not absolutely creating a different world, then there's still nukes around. So Hmm. affirmative really has to embrace the whole moral principle of the ought that the ought offers or else eliminate... Like, they're supposed to go together, if you know what I'm saying. I think that that, that, that fits, and it also uh, it, it shows the level of commitment that Affirmative has to be willing to embrace, because we can't, uh, and, and really that's going to address what I think is one of the biggest arguments that NEG has access to. Because NEG could come back and say, at any point where one country holds on to their nukes and everyone else demilitarizes in this way, suddenly that country is way more powerful than they used to be. Yep. Affirmative has to stick to its guns. Negative. I mean, negative is going to be going all in on pragmatics. How are we going to get this done? Right. So, right. yeah. I don't, I don't even see how affirmative can win on that side. That's why I'm suggesting the embracing the moral yeah, side of things. It's got to be. We're going to have two. The, uh, I, I'm sure plenty of folks will use the two worlds approach, the affirmative world, the negative world, and all that. But There's a massive sense of urgency on affirmative, too. So I think so, that'll yeah. make That'll build a great narrative, too, if it anyone's will. willing to construct one. Uh, okay, and the last thing, of course, is these nuclear arsenals. And I know we were talking earlier about uh, how nuclear submarines kind of slightly complicate the picture. But it, I think in one sense, the nuclear arsenal is still relatively straightforward. We are talking about nuclear bombs that are incredibly devastating with all kinds of research to get into the megajoule count of how much energy is released with fission versus fusion bombs and different mechanisms of delivery. But either way, we're talking about the weapons that can deliver a nuclear bomb from one country to another. Yeah. Whether that's a domestic missile, an intercontinental ballistic missile, a missile launched out of a submarine, or whether we're talking about kind of the old school 1945 dropping of the, I think it was... Uh, little Boy. Little Boy, and what was it? it was Fat Something. It was fat Something. Fat yeah. Boy. Uh, it was, it was little, no, it was... I know there was, was Little Boy and Fat Something. Anyway, dropping the two atomic... <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, yeah, don't cut that. I'm yeah, fine with right. that. Anyway, we're good. Uh, but dropping those two on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, but we're, we're still looking at that kind of devastation. And it's interesting that these, these nuclear arsenals are primarily focused on deterrence because this isn't a weapon that the, mil- that the military would just use on an everyday basis where 
we need this or else our offense suffers or our, our defensive capabilities. Remember the Thad, the Thad missile system? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a public forum resolution right. two years ago, I think. So that's a necessary missile defense system. I think it could defend against nuclear weapons, but it could also defend against the the contempt or the, the typical sorts of missiles. So that's something the United States well, and, would use all the time. But at the same time, uh, if I remember correctly, the Thad missile defense system was not flawless. It, no, it was, it was not, not terribly accurate. It was better than nothing. Right. But it wasn't like, oh, we have this impenetrable wall of missile defense lasers or something. Exactly. It was like, oh, we're, we're, we have a way of shooting it down if we track it in the right time and if these circumstances line up. So, and forget about tracking one of these things down at the right amount of time, because ICBMs can get somewhere in no time, because they literally enter space and come back down when the Earth is orbited in the right spot. So, and, and to just finish that point I was making earlier... These are not your typical everyday military weapons. These are weapons of mass destruction that are literally, that have massive consequences associated with them, which is why they've almost never been used. So then that, that really kind of probably gets at the biggest affirmative argument, I think, where AF is going to be trying to follow the approach you just laid out, where they're attempting to say nuclear weapons are essentially fundamentally different than any other kind of weapon that has ever existed. Exactly. This is not guns scaled up to the war of nations. Like I'm tempted to argue on Neg, this is basically a gun rights resolution. We haven't had a good countries. gun rights re resolution in forever. Well, it's probably because it's too pressing and personal for high schoolers in That's the last true. couple of years. I mean, I, we I mean, had one though wait, a while there ago. Was, was there was there was one, grade. but uh, I mean, goodness, I mean, it seems like every with each of the uh, the last two years, there each of them have had a high school shooting. That yeah, I know I've had we've had high schoolers at our school who have family members near a couple of those places, and it hits pretty hard. Yeah, this is at least. Worst case scenario, fun to dream about. What could happen and would be awful to actually live through, or right. we might not live through it. Okay, so <clears throat> I know you were telling me earlier about denuclearization. For context's sake, right. what, what has already happened in terms of denuclearization since, say, 1991? I'm going to frame this as an affirmative reply to a negative argument. The negative... The, the negative impulse is to say this is never going to happen. We're not going to see everybody reduce their nuclear arsenals. Um, forget about eliminating them. We're never going to see them reduced in the first place. But I do know that we've made, both Russia and the United States have made massive amounts of progress in reducing the amount of nukes that they have. So I know Russia was the most. Russia capped out at about, it was upper 30,000, about 40,000 nukes, and then denuclearized to the point of having about 7,000. The United States capped out around, I think, 35,000 or 30,000, and then broke its way all the way down to about 6,500, which is like a 75% reduction on both of those fronts, if not more. So there, this has been done to a massive degree before, but what I think is happening is that the, all of the countries, all nine on this list, are really wanting to hold on to these last ones because you don't need 40,000 nukes to destroy a country. You need a handful, right? So the handful is what's important. They've just got rid of dead weight. Now we're actually holding on to what's like what's really important um, as far as deterrence goes and mutually assured destruction goes. But so far, there's been a lot of progress made with denuclearization. It's just a matter of how important is that last 6,500 nuclear warheads. Which, of course, AF is urging the elimination of, and NEG thinks we ought to not eliminate. Right, so that's just affirmative saying... It can happen. I mean, we've made this much progress, so it's not entirely impossible. If the affirmative really wants to push themselves into pragmatic ground like that, which I wouldn't suggest, but it's there. But it's great to have that kind of counter-response ready to go. Right. And if, there, if anyone's listening to this and has no idea about nuclear anything like me, 
the way I know this stuff and I'm actually relatively prepared for this video or for this podcast is by watching YouTube videos and going through the history of literally how nukes started and which countries have nukes, what are the relations between these countries. So that's a great, that's a good place to start. And then you just read a ton of articles, get an idea of the current environment. So you realize this is one of those moments where we're showing the generational difference on our podcast. Yeah. What, if, how would you know about nukes? I mean, cause I read, I grew up reading science fiction novels and watching Star Trek and generally being, and I was alive during the end of the Cold War. So, I, and also, of course, when I was your age, there was, YouTube might have existed. Did you have anything to add about Star Trek that would be useful? Oh, just that Star Trek is kind of constantly, uh, it, it's all framed as sort of a uh, post-liberal hippie vibe. We need to have peace between all peoples. That is, if you go back to the original Star Trek, it's very much formed in the context of the Cold War. Okay. Um, so yeah, YouTube, articles, yeah, everything. Just, just like try to consume. I mean, it's an information age, man. Got to get it. As I, I, as I know. I know. That's that's fascinating. I was you cracked me up with uh, what you were saying about math class and it not making sense. So you oh, watch yeah. lessons on YouTube. I would never have thought of doing that when yep. I was in high school. But one of the things I think is probably important for context sake is take just a moment and go back to at least look at how did we get to the point where there were so many nukes by say 1989 with the and then by definitely uh, with the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the or fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union and part of that has everything to do with the Cold War um, what do you know about the Cold War that's up to you I, I'm not doing this part. Okay, That's why I'll, I'm, I'll do this that, part. Yeah, when I'm silent, that means something. All right, all right, all right. I'll do. I'll handle the Cold War part. So the Cold War is a massively complicated area that would be really fun to do a whole separate bonus episode with some other folks and really get into details. But as a broad superstructure, broad paint strokes, you have the uh, USSR, the Soviet Union, on uh, begins with Russia. And it starts with the Bolshevik Revolution and quickly becomes becomes the only communist country uh, in the early 20th century. And they continue expanding, and Russia then expands westward and takes over the surrounding countries in the Eastern Bloc. And by the time you get to the 1950s, uh, you have China also becomes a Soviet country. And by the time we get to the late 1950s, the world is divided into two different competing forces. You have the communist world that is going up against what is often termed the free world. It's kind of a loose collection of Europe and America and different countries around the world. And you have a series of conflicts between these two different forces. Now, there's a whole bunch of things. My favorite piece on this is by a guy named Whitaker Chambers. He wrote a no, uh, not a novel. It's his autobiography called Witness, where he describes be, being a communist and being an agent of the Communist Party, sending information to the Soviets, and then rejecting communism and coming out of that. He's got one of the best short pieces to describe what the ideological differences between capitalism and communism are. But the economic differences are key for this discussion and the, and the development of nuclear, we nuclear weaponry because economically, communism depended on growth because what they quickly discovered was that under communism, the idea of nationalizing all property and then redistributing it along authoritative lines meant that they very quickly consumed all the property and they needed more stuff to keep the party members fed. So while the peasantry are starving, the lords of the party, even though they've claimed to help everyone get richer, the, the rulers of the party are the ones who are, are eating well during Soviet years. 
uh, but they have to keep growing in order to keep their the Soviet machine alive, afloat, and looking better than a capitalist machine. Because part of the Soviet Union was assuming that they were actually better than capitalism and looking the part. So now, meanwhile, over in the free world, uh, there then becomes this competitive drive to say, haha, we in the capitalistic West are much more successful than those slaves in the communistic East, and we are definitely better. Well, capitalism is also a growth-minded economic system. It's always assuming there is upward mobility and capital to be developed. So these two economic systems become mutually exclusive when you scale them up to the entire planet. So economically, they are at odds with each other. Politically, they're also at odds with each other. And this then is where the Cold War comes into play, because the Cold War is ultimately an attempt to keep this, is to have where both sides fight wars with each other through proxy states. So the Korean War is a struggle of the Cold War, where Soviet Russia backs North Korea, the United States backs South Korea. It's really Russia versus the United States fighting through Korea. Vietnam becomes the same thing. The United States backs the South Vietnamese, Soviet Russia backs the Northern Vietnamese, and it becomes that kind of a struggle. Throughout the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, this is the, this is the reality. Now, both sides, in, by 1945, the United States, as you mentioned with the Manhattan Project, has figured out how to develop atomic weapons. And that then means that they can arm them and, and deploy those throughout the world. Russia figures this out very shortly thereafter. We've got the two global superpowers with the biggest weapon ever developed, and both of them are upping their weapons. So this develops a nuclear arms race. So it became a question not just of, well, do we have nuclear missiles? Do we have as many nuclear missiles as Russia does? And this came to a head in the 1960s under President John F. Kennedy with the Cuban Missile Crisis, where uh, Soviet Russia was helping out their communist neighbor Cuba, far, far away, but uh, close neighbors ideologically, by sending a whole bunch of Russian missiles and basing them out of Cuba. Well, the United States caught wind of uh, some of these images, and it looked like they saw nuclear warheads 90 miles off the coast of the United States. Quite troublesome. And no, they eventually, uh, President Kennedy and, uh, and Khrushchev eventually made an arrangement where those missiles went back to Russia. But it was the closest moment where we almost hit nuclear devastation. Now, under this, all comes, this also comes in with, uh, by the 1980s, President Ronald Reagan develops the doctrine you already mentioned, of mutually assured destruction, where he, was, he initially was a big fan of a system called Star Wars that was a missile defense mechanism, but like Thad, it wasn't flawless, and it never really got the funding to really get it off the ground. So President Reagan developed this mutually assured destruction idea where... Uh, your, your timing is about right. There, there's, there's some window of time to know that a missile has been launched from, say, Moscow and is going to fly to New York City. And we can tell by way of radar that that's coming. We can't stop it, but there's enough time for someone in D.C. to enter the codes, push the button, and a missile launch to Moscow. We can make sure that the enemy is destroyed. And so what functionally happens is that both the United States and the USSR develop these massive nuclear arsenals and never actually deploy any of them because of mutually assured destruction. So, 
Of course, in 1989, the Berlin Wall falls, the Soviet Union collapses, and modern-day Russia is working to really end uh, a lot of the things that the Soviet Union did. And so that's where I think I think that's all connected to the denuclearization you were mentioning earlier. Okay, so basically the the biggest escalation of this problem was the Cold War, and yes. that, and that's where we've seen our closest moment to the devastation of humanity in the United States or U.S. versus USSR kind of thing. Okay. Which is still where North Korea has strong ties to Russia. China has strong ties to Russia. Uh, now, France, the U.K., Israel, and the U.S. all have ties together. Um, India and Pakistan are kind of the odd ones on this list. But Pakistan does have a history of purchasing black market weapons from Russia, which may be, I suspect, where they would get some of their nuclear weapons. India is the up-and-coming power in terms of uh, economics and science, so I'm not surprised to see them on this list. So lots of interesting relations here where tensions could arise again. Lots of it. Okay, so why are nuclear weapons such a big deal? Let's go through the list. Everything could end. Existential threat. Existential threat. Literally. Um, it, it takes a long time to kill people one by one. If you have to go around with a gun and actually kill 360 million Americans, that's going to take a long time or a lot of manpower. But if you can deploy one missile uh, and destroy, say, New York City, there's 8 million. If you can hit New York City, Atlanta, L.A., Seattle, and D.C., you could cripple a national economy with only five missiles. And you could knock out the economy and you can kill millions of people and, and you can also leave devastating ecological impacts with lasting radiation and destroying the ecosystem so that it's really hard to rebuild those areas. I think one of the best examples of that was Hiroshima and Nagasaki where it was just utter devastation and the radiation was killing even more people from the initial blast. Mm -hmm. So we know what these weapons can do. It's just a matter of how do we get people not to fire them. Is the best way to denuclearize or is the best way to have mutually assured destruction where everyone's too scared of each other? Oh, I think that's, ultimate, that's one of the big questions of this debate. And affirmative, of course, is going to side on one spot and neg's going to be on the other. So what do you think of the affirmative value? I have an idea for affirmative value um, that kind of like stems from that. And, but I want to hear what your initial affirmative value would be. I would want to, um, I, I, my initial affirmative value is going to be one of three things. I'm either going to go with life, existence, or being. And I was going to say humanity. So, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I want to, and I, I, I do think there's value. I want to extend that past humanity as I, I really do want to keep the ecological harm in there. That makes sense. So yeah, extend it as far as we can, honestly. Yeah. The affirmative needs all the framework we can get. Right. So I'm going to extend that to really uh, everything and essentially arguing, uh, and, and this is where I want to draw on Heidegger from his book Being and Time, which I'm not really recommending Heidegger to any of our listeners. He is um, quite difficult. He's, he's a beast to wrestle with. Uh, but he deals a lot with questions of existence that a lot of other philosophers assume. So Heidegger's one person that you could go to for, uh, it, it would take some waiting to find the right block quote to, to make cut your card. Uh, but he's got some great stuff about the affirmation of being. Uh, so I would want to affirm because existence is better than non-existence, we must affirm today's resolution. Something okay. of that nature. What, what are you seeing on, on AF? I was going to say humanity, but I like how you extended it more so we can have some impacts. Just throw more impacts in there and have a more comprehensive affirmative case. But one is so that we have the neg value on here, security or peace. I was going to use peace or 
at least consider that as my main value, but security I see is another one. Both of these have space for the other one to say that fits under my value. And I think that's, this is the most obvious resolution, or the resolution that makes this the most obvious. Like with other ones, I don't remember what the values were for SAT, ACT, like you could get diversity under my value, you could get you know meritocracy under this maybe. But this is like, look, we need or we need life and existence in order to be able to ensure security and peace. And the best way to do that is to denuclearize so that we have peace. But the negative is going to be like, no, security is the only way that we can have life. Like, affirmative's world is way too ideal, so we're just going to keep ourselves secure with mutually assured destruction, then we have peace. But then what if some crazy person comes to power? And, you know, like, it just goes <laughs> down this whole... So I know we skip straight to the value, but I, right. no, I feel I think like that's we, important. we needed that to hash out the point from before. Yeah. So now there's a couple of other things to well, consider. Well, before we move on, the only thing I want to mention, uh, I mentioned Heidegger on an affirmative value. Uh, honestly, I would point to Machiavelli as a great philosophical political thinker. Um, for He has a great bit in his book, The Prince, where he talks about there's two things every prince wants. They want to be feared. They also want to be loved. And governments uh, would fit under the same thing. And Machiavelli draws the point that it is better to be feared than loved. So in terms of the neg, I think negative could get a lot of ground out of that kind of idea that it is better for other countries to fear one country because they have this arsenal, and that way they'll act out of fear rather than out of, oh, this country won't really attack us. No, we better respect that country because if they, they really get angry, they can annihilate us with their nuclear arsenal. And so it's better for each state to have the ability to project fear than it is to project love. I think Machiavelli would be a great source. Yeah. I was thinking that it may not apply because he was talking about ruler and, ruler and subject, but if you just take the general principle, you could apply it pretty yeah. much anywhere. I, I think, and that's, that's usually how people apply Machiavelli today because there's not very... Yeah. There aren't really any Renaissance princes running around. There are still princes, but Prince Andrew in England and all of his trouble with Epstein and Pleasure Island is not Machiavelli's prince who is walking around executing people because right. they didn't bow to the proper degree. Uh, okay. Oh, you had some other questions I thought we are worth considering before right. we kind of go through a couple other pieces and wrap this up. This is like my affirmative. So the negative has their own type of skepticism, like whether this, will this work or not? I think affirmative has room to be skeptical of the negative when it comes to mutually assured destruction, which I, I know this is like the only framework we're discussing on NEG, so I'm sure there's another one we could talk about. Plenty of other ones people will come up with by January. But basically the negative's premise is that if I have nuclear weapons and you have nuclear weapons, both of us won't attack because then both of us will wind up dead. There's, I think there's a theory about this called game theory that mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Bonnet was talking about where both people or both parties need to make a decision and the best solution is mutual cooperation. Um, so and people benefit the most by cooperating with each other, and that's the idea behind mutually assured destruction. But is it does it really work that way? The real politique word that you always bring up in um, the debate elective. Do so. I'm just wondering. Do you think that the people who wield these weapons really think rationally all the time, and are we completely out of the woods when it comes to somebody pressing that button when they're not supposed to? Well, I, I'm going to be philosophically pessimistic enough to say we can't say with absolute certainty that they will, this will always be in the hands of rational actors. Um, so, of course, you got – I thought of two immediately. Um, I think you mentioned Kim Jong-un yeah. earlier. Right, the, the Un family has a clinical history of insanity uh, that, that they have strung into a, an odd religious cult that's, that they use to control the, the people of North Korea – 
Uh, but I, I do not have any confidence in the sanity of the Un family. So if they do truly have access to nukes, that that that's that's dangerous. Exactly. Um, we are not that far away from. Uh, I I mean I remember the. Do you remember when Saddam Hussein was killed? Yeah. Like. I mean, Saddam Hussein was, maybe he was rational and just that horrible of a person and a tyrant. Maybe he was a bit nuts. Uh, he was somebody else who had the, uh, as far as I'm aware, he did not have nukes, but he uh, had the connections and the oil money that he could have acquired black market warheads and, and done something with that. Uh, I, I don't think that President Trump is insane, but obviously we're in the middle of, I don't know, week what of impeachment hearings that right. are based on basically nothing about President Trump, where plenty of people are skeptical enough of President Trump that it's they could have, they could I'm sure plenty of folks have imagined wow we elected a crazy guy and gave him to nuclear football and I mean he he makes people mad pretty easily too so if there's anyone that's going to be angering foreign countries into wanting to launch their nukes not saying they will right but he's your guy well and I, at least for where Neg I think could come back to some of that kind of discussion is to point out that what, is, what has happened with President Trump, and I suspect happens in most governments, is that charismatic figures who maybe are unstable in personality tend to be surrounded by much more stable people. Now, President Trump has an, has an excellent staff that surrounds him. He has excellent speechwriters. He has excellent personnel all around him. So even if he is less than stable, the people around him balance that out. Yeah, but Kim Jong Un has absolute power, so <laughs> no one <laughs> no one keeps him in check. Like even if so, right. there's someone sitting next to him, like, hey, I don't think you should do this. It's his decision. No one can stop him. So there, and it's because not every government's structured like that of the United States or the UK right. or anybody where you have anywhere where you need to go through multiple levels of decision making in order to launch the nukes. That's my concern. I think affirmative has all the ground in the world to say, look, is it better to just have no nukes or is it better to have nukes and just trust that everyone's going to keep their hands off the button? Someone's going to press the button, <laughs> like eventually. <laughs> and or, do this in cross-examination. Just go up to the negative. Can you, can you guarantee that no one's going to press the button? Negative says no. And then affirmative is like, well, why don't we just have no nukes? Well, negative is like, well, that can't happen. That's not possible. So if we're I mean, if you have to then double back and say it is not my job to prove it, it doesn't need to be possible. We have the moral obligation to reduce exactly. or to eliminate nukes because if we don't, someone's going to push the button and we're going to have the deaths of millions. Yeah. There. But now the other big question that we really ought to consider, I thought you uh, you asked an excellent question. Uh, do we have the responsibility to accurately wield this knowledge? What do you think? Do we? The knowledge about what? Oh, particularly, do we have to wield this kind of knowledge? We have the knowledge to destroy, say, 10 million people within an hour. Do we have the responsibility to use that kind of knowledge well? Oh, we, we have the obligation to use that type of knowledge well. As far as the capacity to use that type of knowledge well, I think that's, that's such a sense. All of, all of the knowledge surrounding this is so sensitive that I don't think any individual human being or any individual government, let alone human being, has the rational capacity to make good decisions with this. All it takes is one bad decision, and it's all over. I mean, if, if we fire nukes, someone else is firing a nuke. Like, no one's going down. That's the... Is it, I mean, if you go down, we're 
I'm coming down, or like I don't know. Yeah, it's everybody's. Yeah. It's yeah. The it, this this leads to Beijing fires on L.A., Atlanta fires on Shanghai, and suddenly the entire world is literally in flames. It, it makes sense because there's plenty of other types of nuclear or no, sorry military weapons, from you know infantry weapons to typical missiles that you would be like non-nuclear missiles, any type of missile in that category that people use for war purposes. And I think those are important. We need those for offense. We need those for defense and protecting our country. But when it comes to protecting humanity, I would, I'm personally, I can see the affirmative view really well on this. This is an entirely new category of weapons. This has the potential to destroy humanity. This has the potential. I mean, we, I, I don't like the feeling of Russia's nukes being pointed at me right now. Nor do I like the feeling of us pointing our nukes at them because someone's going to do something. Or even if, even if no one does something. We have massive weapons pointed at each other. So in the affirmative world, it looks so much better. Why don't we just have peace? Right. Again, the practicality which, is the which one Which means thing. this is going to come down to an argument of neg contending political realism means that we have to have our nukes. Because all it takes on the negative, from the negative perspective, sure, F, every country says they'll do that. And then one country holds on to it. They secret away one nuke. And they have the last nuclear weapon. And no one will ever really disarm completely. I, I can easily see the negative argument focusing on the reality that each country is going to seek their own interest, and they're not going to see the broader benefits right. of humanity. But then, the, then affirmative will just say it's fine. The moral obligation's still there. They still ought to eliminate it. So the key for AF, on your perspective, is that affirmative must stand by that moral obligation and must withstand, because NEG is going to insist that AF has to accept the burden of practicality over and over and over again. Affirmative silver bullet is the ought and the resolution. The only thing I feel like negative, I think that negative can do, I know you'll do that every time, so I'm just going to say I think that. Good. Good. Okay. It's good training. Ought, ought is the silver bullet on affirmative. Negative can come back with practicality questions all it wants. But the moral obligation here is really nice for the affirmative. I think the negative needs to try to prove that we're safer with mutually assured destruction than pursuing denuclearization as a whole or eliminating all nuclear weapons. What do you think? I think that those are those really are the, the grounds of the debate. Or, or Sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. I mean, I think that, that that's really all I've got on that. I think those those really are the main arguments. And at this point, I think we, given another two or three weeks, we may come back for a follow-up episode with some more specifics. And I know uh, sometime in a couple of weeks, I've got an interview scheduled with doc, Dr. Nathan Orlando because he finished his PhD nice. since last time he came on the show. Dr. Nathan Orlando is going to join us, and uh, he, he's going to bring his uh, PhD in international relations to this discussion. Nice. Because we're focusing on the nuclear arsenals bit. He's going to focus on the states bit and help us Perfect. a lot more yeah, with some that. of the geopolitical realities here. But I, I think we've done a pretty good job of laying out the basic ground, groundwork for the debate. So I kind of want to think about negative just a little bit more before we end here. Okay. Because the negative is going to say the states ought not eliminate their nuclear arsenals. And that's for the purpose of safety. Are we really – but then again, we can't consider it as if the affirmative won out and we actually eliminated all of them. Do you think we're safer under the negative world? I think we are safer. Now, I think – now, part of that is that I think NEG may need to fight to focus on a particular state here and, and may argue that the United States could not do that. Or that what part of – the easiest ground I see on NEG is to argue that 
uh, every state that has nuclear weapons must do this at the same time, or this is meaningless. W- would like this is a question I have for so many resolutions, not the, not just this one. You know, the affirmative is always arguing for an ideal, and the negatives are always arguing for something that's necessary evil slash practical. Can the negative say, "Ought we do something that can't work, that won't work"? That's like the oh. that's like the most dangerous question on neg, and it always everyone. Everyone never... T- okay, I'm going to rephrase that horribly for his sentence. Nobody <laughs> takes the time to directly ask that question, but it's at the core of every debate. Because the negative is like, or affirmative is like, we need this world. It's an, this is a more ideal world. We'll have this one policy fixed, benefit X, Y, Z. Negative is like, it won't work. Affirmative is like, yeah, it doesn't matter, but yeah, it kind of will work. Negative is like, no, it won't work. But ought we do something that won't work? Because negative can prove that it won't work. We have plenty of evidence. We denuclearize 75% of the weapons. All we need is like 0.01% of the weapons to, to destroy a massive amount of people, cities, you name it. Ought we do something that won't work? Oh, that's a fun question. I don't, I, I, I don't know if I have a good answer for you. I'll see what my negative opponent thinks at the next tournament. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Let me think that through for a second. Ought we do something that won't work? Well, I think what, what that is assuming, and, and both sides in a typical debate do this, they, they assume that the data that they have, the research that they've done, the, whether the cards they've, they have are excellent research or they grab some random Slate article and they've cited it as uh, Wickstaff 2019 and say as if this is like some official card and you never ask and it's really just some kind of random op-ed piece in Slate. Um, Whatever They assume that the data that they present accurately predicts the future and that because they have data that they're, therefore their, their arguments are sound. So I don't know that I would go that route. I would not go the route of saying, is it my burden as negative to affirm that we have to do something that won't work? I want to focus on the fact – I want to attack – I'd rather focus on disproving AF than somehow proving something on the negative side. And if I can now, you have to have a judge who actually judges, believing that if if I on neg can delink the affirmative's chain of argumentation, if I can show that AF fails to meet their burden, or if I can disprove them, the neg is then that's sufficient for neg. But delinking would involve taking the argument and saying this doesn't meet the moral obligation, or that your evidence doesn't actually either fit your claim or lead to your impact. So could you give me an example of an affirmative argument? Because I'm having trouble seeing any negative refutation to the affirmative that doesn't sound like that won't work. Uh, let's see. So maybe if you if affirmative has argued, uh, resolved, elimination of nuclear arsenals will increase uh, diplomatic relations. And they then come out with a statement to say, the they have a they have some number and claim and source that says the increase in nuclear arms causes antagonism between nations, and then their impact is that when we get rid of that, uh, we will see a relaxation of hostility. Well, I want to come back and then propose. Well, judge, look at their arguments. Notice that they have positioned a fact. They've told you that fact means this. But what they've not done is shown you specifically that there actually is causality there. Perhaps there is long-standing tension. So if you say, uh, so maybe in this scenario that I'm concocting on the spot, since you posed this this mm-hmm. way, uh, maybe this is India and Pakistan. And I, if I happen to know a bit of background on India and Pakistan, I might bring up, 
Judge, India and Pakistan's hostilities go way back beyond when they acquired nuclear weapons in the 1980s. They have hated each other since partition in 1947. <laughs> and so they have been at odds over the Kashmir Valley since 1947. So because, just because they have nuclear weapons means that they are expressing their hostilities in the, with these, but it doesn't mean that getting rid of those weapons will resolve the hostility. So it doesn't mean what my opponents are saying that it means. So negative is basically going to attack the affirmative, and we don't see too much potential for a constructive on neg. I, I mean, I in that example I came up with there, I mean, I think what, what you actually, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that states that have sunk this much economic investment into a high-powered military system are not going to just destroy it. They're not going to destroy the investment. They're not going to destroy the defensive capabilities they get from it or the offensive capabilities. They're simply not going to do that. So, But you've asked me to frame this in terms of ignoring what, what actually will happen. So I want to focus – I think NEG's constructive has got to be practical in nature. What do you think if someone on the affirmative said – like imagine if Russia tried to nuke France. That nuke is not just going to affect France. There's going to be tons of countries that, mind you, don't have nukes that are going to be harmed by that explosion. What so, you're also going to then get is every country that has a treaty to protect France, which the United States is one of, is then technically obligated to be at war with Russia if Russia does that. So what you could quickly have in that kind of scenario, and this is again a negative point, that this is so bad it will ne that, that means no, no country is willing to start this, but AF could say... Crazy people. Well, or... Accidents, because I'm thinking World War One, and I'm gonna give oh, this. Oh, the Archduke. Yeah, the Archduke. The Archduke of Austria was assassinated, and it triggered a collapse, a cascade of alliances, and suddenly the whole world's at war, and no one really knows why or what for. You could have that with a nuclear exchange. So, so someone accidentally fires a nuke, and then. Could be. I mean, but again, I would hope that that would not happen. But oh yeah, our, certainly. Our, our whole point in this discussion is that we're dealing with the worst option of military exchange, and the question is either could it happen, or and because it's so bad, will it never happen, or should we just remove the possibility, and would that removal ever actually happen? And that's a great way of summing things up. Which is good, because we are out of time. I have yep. to be in a meeting in about 20 minutes, so we got to wrap this I up. i got to be somewhere, too. So Excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us this afternoon for uh, another episode of What's the Res? We hope that this episode is a help to you as you are preparing for your next tournament competition. Uh, do feel free to let us know how you, uh, what, what you think about this episode. Uh, you could go over to uh, Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review with a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Ethan, how else can people get in touch with us? If you want to get in, in touch with us, you can email us at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S -E -E at gmail.com. Go to our website, www.whatstheres.com. Or you can check us out on Instagram and Reddit and Twitter at whatstheres underscore. Excellent. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, as always, you could check out our premium podcast for $3 a month or $30 a year. You can get a monthly debate that we record. We call these real debates by real people where we have educated non-experts discussing controversial issues. Our December episode is going to be a debate between myself and Dr. Will Begley on the resolution, People with PhDs ought to be called by the title Doctor. 
Uh, we had quite a lot of fun with that. That's uh, a bit of a more of a fun Christmas uh, debate rather than a serious, relevant topic. We've got one coming up in January uh, where uh, we're going to be arguing about uh, whether or not uh, biblically consistent Christians can use contraception. Uh, that's going to be rather a controversial episode, I expect, and uh, we hope that you will check it out. So until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.